You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Forefront. My name is Sarah New. I'm the community director here in our church. All pronouns are okay with me. And um, just adjust my foot here. Today, um, we're, we're starting our Lenten series, and I'll explain a little bit what that is by first just relaying a small anecdote about to-do lists. Um, I love seeing everyone's comments about the multiple methods y'all choose to keep track of what's going on. Um, th- uh, a few weeks ago, I really like having um, vertical shelves and like floating shelves on our walls. Um, we've been living in an apartment for three years, but I'm obsessed with like, how to make it better. And so um, I'm into the construction, but my partner, Abby, is really into, like, picking the aesthetic. So I kept asking her, um, I need you to, like, pick the brackets that support the shelf. Uh, tell me if you want white or black ones. It's like, I'm not ready. Give me a few days. The next day I ask her. No response. The next day I ask her. I'm getting more irritated. And she's like, Sarah, it's, it's 8.30 in the morning. Like, I, I haven't really even dr- drunk my coffee why is this so urgent? We've we've been living in this apartment for three years. And I pause, I don't really know what to say, and she says, is this because you wrote it on your to-do list this week and you just want to check it off? Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, sure. And and she said, well, then it sounds like your problem and not mine. And then it was about that point, along with many other points, that I realized I have a slight problem. Um, similar to Mackenzie, I'm a Capricorn, and it's a slight problem around having to feel like I have checked everything off on that list before I, you know, feel like my day is done or feel like my week is done. If not, I, I get very irritated. And I, on one, I have this kind of love and hate relationship with to-do lists. On one hand, um, I love them because I write everything down. Like you can see a kind of list of sorts. Um, I have like a weekly planner and a daily list. And when I write everything down, I feel more at peace because then exit my it exits my head. It lives in somewhere else. I don't have to keep thinking about it. But I also hate them because when um, I write them down, I also feel like they've become like the Ten Commandments I have to follow. And now they have control over me, even though I was the one who created them. Um, and, and I start to want to rebel, you know, like I don't want to do my list. I want to, and I, I embarrassingly started playing Candy Crush three years after everyone uh, finished playing it. So stuff like that. Um, and so one of the things I do at the end of the day, I think many, I think I saw Megan, you wrote in your comment that you keep your list, but if it sucks when you don't finish what you wrote in your list, you feel like you kind of failed in some ways. Uh, definitely at the end of the night, I'm just like, shoot, I wanted to do all these things. I didn't do them. Now I'm scrambling to do them. And there's this um, prayer book called the Book of Common Prayer, which is an Episcopalian um, great prayer book I recommend for those of you who are looking ways to structure your prayer life. They have this prayer that you say in the morning and evening. And part of the prayer involves a confession kind of prayer. And there's a line in the confession prayer that says, um, we have sinned against you by thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have not done. Um, and I think we'll have a, a slide to show show that that line in particular. But um, the confession is about sinning and like what we have done, what we have not done, you know, against God and that type of thing. But when I always read that prayer line, I always think, I, I feel like it's about what I didn't do and by what I did not do, by the tasks I've done and by the tasks I've left undone, so to speak. I almost rewrite the prayer lines in my head unconsciously. And it's interesting because I think a lot of our Christian tradition is generally 
kind of preoccupied with sin, with like doing the right thing. Did I, did I, did I hurt someone? Did I not hurt someone? And it's great, but I kind of feel like our modern day American capitalist obsession is actually not around doing the right thing, but around doing things like getting things done versus getting distracted. That's kind of what we wrestle with. So like in Romans um, 7, in Romans chapter 7, when Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh, so into slavery and to sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And it and I, the way I, <laughs> this verse is relevant for me these days is I think about the productive thing that I want to do, I don't do. With a distraction, unproductive thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. That is like my moral, my angst, my my wrestling these days. And it's it's a bit sad. Um, and here's here's another verse kind of illustrates this point. 1 Corinthians 9. Um, the author is writing about how, um, you know, how uh, I'm going to read the verse out loud so I have it verbatim exactly. I beat my body and I bring it into submission, lest by any means, after I preach to others, I myself should be rejected. So, you know, presuming Paul's the author here, um, Paul's, you know, most likely talking about how he's trying to exercise control over his bodily urges such that no one can accuse him of anything. Um, so that he will not bring the church down with any his bad reputation. And I get, you know, that that is what's going on in the historical context. The way I think about this verse for myself is, well, how do I beat my body into submission? Mm-hmm. Frankly, it's it's for work, you know? Like, I, I got to stay up till 10, 11 o'clock, finish these things, just because I, I wrote them down on my list. Or oh, I, I got to suppress my hunger to eat lunch or go to the bathroom so I could stay in this work meeting for a little longer. Uh, that I think these days is how I sort of beat my body into submission, and and I think all of this sort of makes people. I think the cumulative effect of all of these things, at least personally, I think some of us can relate to this, is a feeling that we're never doing enough, and that feeling is what we're going to unpack in this sermon today. And in general, with this Lenten series with Susan Lent, um, we're kind of going to dig into those funky feelings, so to speak, the feelings that kind of get at you, in your, I'm not sure why I'm getting audio feedback, but I'm going to keep moving on. Um, the, but, and, and so like feelings like mental health, like anger, like loneliness, the feeling, these are the feelings we're going to unpack in this series. I think Robbie came up with his great, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek graphic. So the question is, how can we be liberated from our to-do list? Using our to-do list as a metaphor for all the things that um, all the demands placed upon us. And I think before I want to get into the solutions and how we can get there and, you know, quote unquote solutions, I want to zoom out a little bit. Oh, yes, this is a title series. This feeling's got me like, and we're going to talk about all the all the funky feelings we were wrestling with. Um, before I, I, I talk about, you know, what I think scripture has to say about these feelings, um, I, I want to spend some time zooming out a little bit and talk about some of the systemic reasons why we feel like we're frantically always keeping track of our list that it's never we're never doing enough because the tendency is to boil it down to the individual like you need to worry less you need to chill out more and um but i think there are very real reasons why i feel this way and i think the easiest way to sum up all those reasons that i'm going to list a laundry list of them is capitalism um 
the audio is good now, by the way. Um, as capitalism, I think, kind of summarizes it all. And this is just my take. This is not uh, a scripture's take. This is not me speaking, uh, you know, as an interpreter of the Christian tradition. This is just me as, as a person. But just think about it. I mean, for many of us, I think our working conditions do dictate that we have this endless list of tasks that we have to keep up with. Maybe we have a boss who's very demanding. Maybe you're a freelancer and you just can't say no to projects because you don't know when you'll get business in the next month. So when people ask you to do things, you got to say yes. And that means doing 10 things in one week. Um, or maybe and what's interesting, I think, like this, this kind of um, freneticness and this kind of enslavement to our work uh, characterizes people across a range of income spectrums from corporate lawyers who are basically highly paid uh, servants, in my opinion, to um, like delivery workers. And, you know, for delivery, which just because we I think a lot of us have been ordering delivery more often in the pandemic. Um, I, I was reading this article in the city and a lot of them banding together to, to demand better working conditions. And they get paid about in DoorDash, for instance, four dollars per delivery plus tips. So they were incentivized to try to complete as many deliveries as possible in an hour. And if they take too long, they get downgraded on an app, and then customers are unhappy and stuff like that. So they've really got to keep track of the to-do list, whether it's snowing, whether it's raining, or what have you. And so far I've discussed formal work, but there's also informal work, domestic work, in particular care work, that often is carried out by women that's often underpaid or unpaid whatsoever, whether it's taking care of the elderly, taking children, um, and I think especially in this pandemic, all of us, uh, particularly those of us with children, uh, of which I'm not included, but we've talked to so many parents, have really felt the value and the need for care work, for um, and, and the role that, for instance, teachers play in taking care of our children. And um, for instance, this past year, I think about two million women exited the workforce in order to take care of the kids because uh, schools and daycares were closed. And so all of a sudden the to-do list of parents have multiplied. You know, you gotta make sure your kids are on Zoom. You gotta cook three meals a day for like everyone. You gotta focus on your tasks while there are a bunch of noise in the background. Um, definitely have vicariously experienced it a little bit through, through work meetings with some of the parents in our congregation, namely just Jonathan actually. Um, but I, I step up to think about how would things have changed? What, how would things change? How would our to-do list change if for instance, our government or our economy compensated people for caregiving work with taking care of kids, taking care of the elderly in our own homes. What if we treated that as real work as someone going in and clocking in for a job with wages? And I think the re and how, how would that change? How, how, how much of a burden would that lift off people's shoulders? And I think the reason why we don't see that as real work has to do once again with capitalism. The fact that for most of human history, all work that was going towards sort of reproduction of life, whether it was raising kids, farming, hunting, was all seen as equally valuable work. But when industrialism uh, arises and people go in, mostly men go in to get to work in exchange for a wage, that is seen as real work. That's seen as work that you get paid for. And a work that's at home that you don't get paid for, that's seen as not real work. So I'll return to this theme a little bit later on. But for now, I think I just want to acknowledge that if you feel like you uh, are always behind on your list, it's not your fault. That there are systemic historical reasons for why these uh, things are the way they are. Don't beat yourself up over it. But I want to pivot and talk about kind of the feeling of when you have to keep up with to-do lists, like someone's 
like someone's chasing you down to do them, even when no one really is. Like the feeling there is that you have this mini boss inside of you that is like harsher than your actual boss or your actual client or your your actual family, let's say, or what have you. Um, wh why is that? Why is it that I think for some of us, we and I think I, I might include it in that, we, we feel this need to like have to keep a track of everything, even when our working conditions, whether formal, informal, are actually relatively decent. And to do that, I'm going to do a quick another history lesson, <laughs> um, as you're all unsurprised by now, on in the history of industrial capitalism. So get ready. And those of you who are in my Christian leftist um, group, you'll um, be, be quite aware of this history. So let's say I'm a peasant in the 1400s. This is my peasant outfit, my J. Crew peasant outfit, um, looking good. And I'm a peasant, and I have a little strip of land that my family tills. I got to give a little bit of the harvest to the Lord, a little bit of harvest to the priest, but for the most part, the land sustains me. I grow crops to feed my family. I grow things to weave clothes to clothe us, and what have you. Around the fourth. 1400s, however, um, all of a sudden land starts getting consolidated from being dispersed and held in common to being held in just the hands of a very few. Sometimes it happens because this rich guy bought out my family, but then sometimes it happens through violence, like my neighbor got just basically kicked out and evicted from his land. So what happens is now is I'm now an ex-peasant. Um, I hope you're okay going through the historical show and tell with me. Um, I'm an ex-peasant and I don't longer have the means of production. I no longer have the means to feed my family. So there's this thing called jobs where I go and I sell my labor and they give me something called money and then I can use the money to buy food, buy clothes and what have you. Oh, actually, I guess in this scenario, my husband would do it because I think, and then I would stay home and raise the children. Probably I just quit and join a nunnery at this point. But for the sake of example, that's what I'm doing. And the, and the working conditions of factories for my poor uh, imaginary husband are not great either. You know, work, no work breaks, no weekends, really. You, you're paid just enough so you don't starve. This is Charles Dickens, England. Um, and, the, and, all, and so all this is happening. Um, and the working conditions are so bad, and you know, some of us are really regretting selling out our land or getting evicted, that some people choose to risk imprisonment or whipping, like public whippings. The laws, like, so basically what happened, we had all these unemployed peasants or ex-peasants who are floating around the cities and they're labeled as vagabonds. They're labeled as ruffins, uh, idlers, what have you. Um, if you're caught begging and you're not working and you can prove that you're unable to work, you're whipped until you bleed, until so you're forced to work. This is um, in 1547, Edward VI issues this um, edict saying that anyone who is denounced as an idler, as like a lazy person, basically, um, will have to be uh, condemned as a slave. And the master of this person is the person who condemned him as an idler. And the master can force the slave to do whatever work through whips and chains. So this is just some example of the criminalization and policing of the unemployed. And I think it's not really too far from the way in which we treat people without homes and houses here in our city and what have you. So, um, you know, this is the context of what's going on. What does this have to do with productivity and to-do lists and what have you? I'll, I'll get there. I'm going to quote uh, from Silvia Federici, who's a, a feminist uh, Marxist historian who does a lot of work, by the way, on housework and how that needs to be compensated. And she says this, um, this quote, 
Games were forbidden, particularly games of chance that besides being useless, undermined individual sense of responsibility and work ethic. Taverns were closed along with public baths. Nakedness was penalized as were many other unproductive forms of sexuality and sociality. It was forbidden to drink, swear, and curse. So you see, not only do we have a demonization of those who are idle and lazy, but any th form of activity that is not bringing people towards productivity, towards, you know, working, is, seen, is like legally forbidden, um, sweet singing, games, and what have you. And so this, you can see this kind of discipline also was prevalent in the workplace, obviously. Around this time, you get something called the invention of the mechanical clock, which means that now boss can come in and say, show up at this time, complete this task by this time, or you're fired. And so it's around this time that management becomes to be invented. The idea that there's someone who's in charge, who um, has figured out, let's say you're, I don't know, in a watch factory in your jobs to assemble the links. They can time how long is the optimal process, the most efficient way to assemble links. Let's say it takes seven minutes. Okay, from now on, I'm gonna hire you I want to watch you and make sure you complete this in seven minutes on average. If not, I'm going to hire and bring in the next ruffian, so to speak, the next vagabond. Um, and so the idea that now there's someone who's watching you, making sure you're working efficiently, effectively, is, is, is like becoming more and more prevalent. And what's really interesting is that this mindset becomes so ingrained that the idea that we have to work efficiently, effectively, complete all these tasks. Federici has this great, great, great quote, the human body and not the steam engine, and not even the clock, was the first machine developed by capitalism. So, I'm gonna, you can see a little bit of how this I'm connecting the dots here. In the late 1800s, the idea of the model worker emerges. Someone who was temperate, doesn't get drunk. Someone who's industrious and not lazy. Someone who's prudent and responsible, doesn't waste money, and is proud to possess a watch. Someone, essentially, who keeps in track of their to-do list. Someone who disciplines and beats their body into submission according to the demands of their mind and tasks. Of course, this person is a white man. I mean, if, if and, and with money. If you're poor, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, you're seen as someone, as the opposite. Like someone's emotional, controlled by the bodies, irrational, PMSing, what have you. So I think what's the most fascinating thing about this history is that even though for most of us, who I'm talking to right now, the condition, the working conditions have been removed. We're no longer industrial factories, um, where we don't have this manager standing over to the stopwatch, but the habits have remained. And they've become so instilled that we start to police and manage ourselves in the absence of an actual manager. And so here's a small example of the ways in which this kind of self-management occurs even in the most subtle way. So here's Federici again. Many new practices appeared in daily life. Use of cutlery, development of shame with respect to nakedness, the advent of manners that attempted to regulate how one laughed, walked, sneezed, how one should behave at the table, and to what extent one can sing, joke, and play. So Federici is arguing that we essentially become disassociated from our bodies. Uh, that the bodies become an object that we have, a commodity in some ways that we have to regulate and monitor and manage to make sure we're not farting in the wrong settings, to make sure we're like healthy and like working out, to make sure we're drinking enough coffee so we're alert to even like start work in the morning. And so in essence, I will argue for the past few hundred years, we've 
developed ourselves into machines. And see, I'll show you this quick 16th century German engraving of a um, peasant. And you can see how in the engraving, the peasant is composed of agricultural equipment and tools, showing how the body begins to see, if you're, like I said, if you're not a capitalist, as, as a means of labor, as a productive machine. And so I think this is, and this kind of bleeds out into the language that we use today to even talk about our, ourselves. You know, we would talk about how someone's a workhorse. We'll talk about how someone, how, about life hacks, which I always thought was strange because you're, you're, what do you, you have computers. So why am I hacking my life? Does that mean that my life is a computer? Um, am, I, am I a machine? And so I think it's even beyond the idea that we're always on a treadmill. I think we've become the treadmill. Um, and, you know, going back to, to, I think the point here is, we don't need laws anymore that bind us to our jobs. We'll beat ourselves into submission to be productive, to not be idle. We don't need managers anymore standing over us with a watch. We'll obsess over our lists and keep track of how efficient we are. And so as a result, when we've internalized essentially external exploitative conditions, we have this kind of voices or demons in our head, arguably, nagging at us, telling us we're not doing enough, telling us we're not measuring up, telling us we fail. This, I think, is the, is the spiritual formation plan of capitalism. Christianity, our tradition, begins from a really different place. Um, and there's so much to say here, I'm gonna keep this on the briefer side. But our tradition holds that as human beings, we are not machines created to labor and produce and be super efficient. We are created, among other things, to receive. So in Genesis 1, and I don't have a slide here because I came up with this last minute, um, we read many things, you know, Adam and Eve are meant to rule over the earth, to be in dominion, to be in control, not to be controlled by the things they create. But we also read this verse, I'll just read it out loud. God says to um, the people, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. So notice here, God says, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed. You shall have them for food. There's no condition here. It's just pure gift. No labor even mentioned. Maybe fruit literally just grew on trees um, without like the need for human intervention for that to human work. Obviously, there's so much to say of Genesis. But I just want to note that here in the beginning, we are called to receive the gifts of God. Later on in Romans 8, which is just a chapter after the whole, the verse in Romans 7, where it's like, Paul's like, I do, I don't want to do, I don't, you know, whatever. Um, here is Paul writing, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A lot of math will obviously a great verse. But I just want to contrast in the Enlightenment period, um, and this is happening in the Enlightenment period, not in the Middle Ages, kings would issue edicts like Edward VI, binding people to their jobs, forcing them to work and not they'll be beaten. In the Christian tradition, we said the only thing binding you to anything, the only thing you are bound to, that nothing can separate you from, is the love of God. It is not our labor, it is not our jobs, it's not what have our to-do list. That is the thing we have to practice receiving. And I think the practice of receiving is one of the ways in which we can create a counter liturgy, a counter ritual to the striving and the productivity that is so endemic in capitalism.
So how do we practice that? You know, we also want to end on some concrete uh, examples. And I think we have to look in it personally. You know, how can you practice receiving the love of God? One of them, one of the ways is to practice receiving help from other people, which means, you know, practice asking for help. So maybe that means sitting down with your roommate or your partner or friend and saying, having a conversation about a more equal division of household chores or by saying like, you know, I think I'm really just exhausted today. Can you help me take care of this like household thing I have to get done? Maybe you have a similar conversation in the workplace saying, hey, I know I told you I'll get this done in a week, but I just need an extra week because it's taking much longer. Is that okay? I should did that this past weekend. The client was like totally fine with it. And I was like, I should really should do this more often. Um, and, and maybe, you know, it's a larger shift that needs to happen in your workplace. Maybe you need to talk to your coworkers and say, yeah, we seem to be, have a culture that really prioritizes workaholism. How do we start to shift that? Maybe we need to talk to our managers and have come up with some collective, um, you know, collective priorities here. I, I want to end on this note, though, because ultimately I think what religion is really good at is getting at the soul and the nitty gritty of like how our soul is wired. And Jonathan always preaches about um, how our brains have to be rewired. And I think they have to be rewired because for a couple hundred years, this is the wiring of capitalism is how we, our brains have been steeped in. Um, and how do we rewire our brains? Jonathan always talks about meditation and, and I completely agree. One of the things I've been trying to work and do is you know, in my prayer or meditation times, instead of treating it as like another task I have to do, I have to get down on my list, even though technically I do write it on my list, um, I try to use it as a time to practice receiving. Instead of using that time to strive and ask for things, I try to use that time to how do I sit in and receive the love of God? And so a concrete way, I want a concrete tool I want to leave you with is um, this prayer that you can pray at night at the end of your day when you've evaluated what you did or did not do and felt guilty about what you did or did not do. Uh, before your mind goes down that track, I want you to read this prayer out loud. It's from an Anglican church in New Zealand. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. And that's how I'm going to close this for today. Lord, it is night. The night is full of stillness. Let us be still in the presence of God. It is a night after a long day. What has been done has been done. What has not been done has not been done. Let it be. The night is dark. Let the fears of the darkness of the world and of our lives rest in you. The night is quiet. Let the quietness of your peace enfold us, all dear to us and all who have no peace. The night heralds dawn. Let us look expectantly to a new day. New joys, new possibilities. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for um, praying with me, Forefront. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.